Let me pray for us before we hear the word of God read. Father, we thank you and praise you that we are your children. We thank you for your word. And as we hear your word read today, Father, and Duncan preach, Lord, we ask that you will soften our hearts. Make us teachable, Father. Remove from us any preconceived ideas or things that we have been taught over the years which may be not quite your word. And Lord, I thank you that we have this privilege of coming together. So many of our brothers and sisters today do not have that joy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Our Bible reading today is from 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to chapter 11, verse 16. Dion will be reading the word for us and she'll be reading from her seat. Thanks, Dion. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions, just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Friends, this is God's word. Let me pray. Our Father, we ask now for your help, 
give us soft hearts before you. Help, give us, help us to think clearly and carefully, um, but make us expectant that in your word you speak to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that's hard to talk about right now, it's gender, right? Uh, it's gender. Uh, I probably wouldn't choose to talk about it if I had my own way. Uh, but, uh, so if you're visiting uh, with us, this will be helpful for you to know. One of our convictions as a church is that God sets the agenda through his word, the Bible. Uh, so we read through books of the Bible together and we don't skip out the hard bits because all the scripture is God-breathed uh, and good and right and true and comes from our Father who loves us from our Father who loves us. So that's a deep conviction of us, and that'll sort of carry us through into today. Uh, this, this word, actually, is a word that we, I think we actually do really need to hear for our flourishing together, and it's a word that you won't hear anywhere else. Um, uh, just a bit of a heads up, uh, I think today's probably going to be a bit longer than usual. I just haven't been able to pair it back enough. Um, but So uh, please bear with me as we go, and I pray that we can concentrate as we look at this important part of, the, of God's Word. We're going to try and do that carefully, uh, but seriously. Uh, so as we've mentioned, we're back in 1 Corinthians today uh, in a long-running series, and we're going to finish the whole letter this term. So by uh, the start of next term, we'll have finished the whole letter. Um, but we all know, right, we all know that there's been this kind of seismic shift in the last few decades about how we think about gender and it just seems to be accelerating. I wanted to share this. Here's a page from Housekeeping Monthly in 1955 uh, with a list of instructions on how to be a good wife. Uh, it gives advice like this. Let him talk first. R remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. It's so jarring for us to hear that, right? So jarring for us uh, to have these kind of very rigid expectations and you fast forward today, and it's a totally different world, isn't it? Totally different world. Um, last year, a question was put to a nominee um, uh, in a position for the US Supreme Court. It ca caused a bit of a stir. Maybe you heard of it. The judge was asked if she could provide a definition for the word woman. And she was unable to answer. She said, I can't. I, I'm not a biologist, she said. On the other hand, uh, we're just as confused about what it means to be a man, aren't we? Is masculinity in itself toxic? What is a man? Is gender all in the mind? Can a man become a woman or vice versa? Should we embrace infinite gender fluidity? Should we do away with the concept of gender altogether and just talk about persons? So it's a massive issue in our culture, right? And I think we're all aware of that. There's a, there's a complex history that feeds into where we're at. A long line of thinkers have taught us, as a culture, uh, the idea that each person ought to create their own identity for themselves. And the way you do that is by looking inside yourself and expressing whatever you find there. That's like a deep value of our society. Uh, so any constraint placed on you from outside yourself, any social hierarchy, uh, even biological reality itself, if that conflicts with your inner feelings, uh, we see it as oppressive and it has to be thrown off if you're going to be who you really are. All of which means, I think, if, as we come to a passage like this that speaks so openly about men and women and even about how they should dress, it really makes us squirm, doesn't it? 
It makes us squirm. So what's going, is this some sort of Stepford Wives or Handmaid's Tale vision of the superiority of men and the oppression of women? I hope we'll see this on the way through and we'll get to this more, but the short answer to that is a clear and emphatic no. This passage is not a call to enforce the 1950s handbook for housewives, okay? But it's also not at all what our culture has embraced, it's a much richer and more it's much richer and more wonderful than either of those either of those but it is a difficult passage <laughs> uh, it is a difficult passage uh, there's there's uh, you know there's whole forests that have been written about how to understand all the different words in here um, there's some difficulties into how how we can properly understand it so what exactly does the word head mean we'll talk about that in a little bit um, uh, what's the deal with the head covering, or is it a, is it a veil, or a particular is it actually a particular hairstyle? We're not, not particularly sure. What's the deal with the angels that gets thrown in there? Uh, no one quite knows. I think there's lots of guesses. So there are difficulties in some of the details in this passage, and we can't cover them all. Happy to chat about them afterwards. But I think the main point of the text is actually pretty clear. Um, but it's, it's, so it's, it is a difficult passage uh, for kind of some of the ways you understand it, but it's also a difficult passage because it can be hard to receive uh, for us to hear, especially if you're someone who has had damaging experiences or someone who struggles with your own gender. So I just want to put that out at the start. I'm conscious that the, just raising the topic can bring up deep and painful issues. And if that's you, please talk to someone that you trust um, I'm more than happy to chat with you if you feel comfortable doing that. Uh, you have a church family who love you and who want to help you walk in holiness before the Lord. So we're going to try and approach this passage humbly and carefully, trying to think hard about what it's actually saying and not sort of import lots of other things into it. But there's, a, there's another way we're approaching this passage. If you're a Christian, you have come to know the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ uh, your identity is in him, not in yourself. Your tr- you find your true self not by looking inward, but by looking upward to him, um, to God, who is the only one who is utterly reliable and unfailingly good. We do not create our own identity if you're a Christian. You receive it from him as a gift. So we want to come humbly and carefully, yes, but also eagerly and expectantly. God's got a good and life-giving word for all of us today. Okay, but before we get to the details of this particular passage, what we're going to do is we're going to take a step back and try to see uh, the bigger picture. There's a really important background to what Paul's saying here about men and women. And it goes right back to the very beginning. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, the account of the creation. Uh, Right back to the the beginning, we read this in Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See the picture that we're getting here? Humanity, male and female, are made in God's image. And we're made with a purpose, uh, this incredible, noble calling to rule the world on God's behalf. 
And you couldn't get a more a higher purpose for humanity than that. It's an incredible responsibility and purpose. And we looked at this a few weeks ago, if you were with us, when we thought about equality. Every person, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, strong or weak, every single person has a fundamental, unshakable equality in this. One humanity made in God's image. And that, from the start, friends, it rules out any idea any idea that, you know, sometimes we talk about the gender wars. Um, it, it rules out any idea that men are a lower form than women or that women are in any way lesser than men. Both men and women have an inherent God-given equality and dignity that's based in our creation. So, um, and not only that, and, and this incredible calling together but did you notice as we read through there, there's also a clear distinction, isn't there? There's this unity, but there's also this clear distinction between the man and the woman. There's, there's two genders here. It's not just one humanity, one sort of monochrome thing. It's also not a, a whole spectrum. There's this pairing of male and female that is good and holy and a gift from a loving God. As you read on in Genesis, chapter 2 zooms in on this creation of humanity. Uh, so chapter 2, verse 18 says this. This is uh, the Lord God. He's um, created Adam first, the man, and he says, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now this is really interesting. If you're reading all the way through, this really stands out. Uh, because this is the very first thing in all of God's creation that is not good. Not good. The man was alone. It doesn't say there the man was lonely, as if Eve is just given to satisfy his needs. That's not what's going on. It means he was alone in his task. Adam couldn't fulfill God's purpose for him on his own. So God creates Adam, uh, so creates Eve out of Adam's rib. Uh, it's this kind of stunning image, isn't it? Here is someone fundamentally the same type yet who wonderfully complements him, is suitable for him. Uh, li literally, the word for suitable there is someone who is like opposite to him. That's kind of what it literally is, like opposite to him. Uh, she is like him, but opposite to him. They fit together so well precisely because they are so different from one another. And that's obviously physical, the man and the woman fit together physically in a way that enables them to fulfill their calling of being fruitful and increasing in number. But it's not just physical. Uh, it's not as if being female or male is just about body parts. There's a much deeper relationship going on here. Eve is Adam's helper, we're called. Now, I don't know how you react when you hear that. Sometimes that's taken as a demeaning thing. But that word helper, it's it's often used in the Old Testament to describe God. Did you know that? Um, God is the helper of his people. There's no sense of inferiority by calling Eve Adam's helper. A helper is someone who can do something that the other person can't, who provides something that the other needs. So you see what's going on here. Already here, before the fall, before sin enters, there is a good and beautiful complementary partnership between man and woman. 
And I think you do actually get a glimpse of the different roles that the man and then woman have. So Adam is given uh, responsibility to work and care for the garden that he's placed in, and Eve is given to him to help and partner with him in their common calling together as those made in God's image. Um, After the fall, uh, it's Adam that God speaks to first, and it's interesting when you get to the New Testament, it's Adam who's seen as the one who is responsible for humanity's fall. Uh, he, he is seen as the head of fallen humanity. Um, if you know the verse, it's in Adam that we all die. So you see this stunning both equality and dignity between men and women, and at the same time, a beautiful difference. There is a joyful partnership As Adam and Eve fill the earth and rule over it together, they delight in one another precisely because they are are like opposite to one another. Uh, Of course, um, you probably know the story. I'm sure you do. Uh, That doesn't last long. The first humans break their relationship with God and that breaks their relationship with each other. So um, one one of the first, it's interesting, one of the first major kind of impacts of the fall is conflict between the sexes. So in place of this beautiful, trusting partnership is now selfishness and pride. Uh, Genesis 3, 16 says this. This is God talking to Eve. He says, your desire, and in this context, that's a kind of negative desire, a desire to kind of control. Uh, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So you get the picture. Instead of the willing, loving partnership together, there's now a fearful desire to control and dominate one another from both men and women. And that sad story gets played out again and again, all through human history, all through the history of Israel and the Old Testament, until, until the true Israelite comes, the new Adam, who is the head of a new creation, what does that verse I referenced before say? As in Adam all die... So in Christ, we'll all be made alive. And just like in the first creation, humanity had a noble calling, in Jesus, in his new community, the church, his people together also have a noble calling. Uh, We saw that. This is one of the striking places you see this, I think, in the New Testament, in the passage we had read at the end of chapter 10. Verse 31 so whatever you do, uh, sorry, so whether, <laughs> I skipped ahead, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. So So, friends, this is the great, holy, noble calling that all of Christ's people are called to, all of us, to live not for the idols of our world, not for ourselves, not for our own desires, but to live for God's glory and the salvation of many. Uh, This is God's calling in Christ for men. It's his calling in Christ for women, for every person who is in Christ. It gives you dignity and responsibility and a holy purpose for your life.
But it seems like there was, there was some confusion in this church in Corinth. There was some confusion around how they were supposed to pursue this calling together as men and women. I think that's something, the background of this passage. There's a bit of confusion. Uh, if you've been reading with us um, through 1 Corinthians over the last couple of years, you'll know that it's a church in chaos, right? Uh, there's all these nasty factions growing up in the church, um, it's a community that is proud about sexual immorality in their midst. It's a community that's confused about marriage and singleness. Uh, they're unsure about how to relate to a world full of idols. And along the way, as we've read through, we've seen how Paul, again and again, he keeps coming back to the gospel. The message of the cross that is foolishness in the eyes of the world, but is the power and wisdom of God. Uh, so that's kind of where we're up to. But, but here, it seems like some people were saying, okay, so now that Jesus has come, now that we're part of his new community, doesn't that do away with male and female? Uh, maybe they've heard of uh, what Paul wrote in another letter to the Galatians. You might be familiar with that verse. There is no longer male or female. We're all one in Christ. Well, Paul wants them to know that, uh, yes, that is wonderfully true. Your gender makes absolutely no difference in terms of your access to God. That is by faith and faith alone. Men are not naturally closer to God. Women don't access God through men. All of us come to God through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying in Galatians. Wonderful truth. But, but what he's saying here is that that doesn't mean that God's good design in creation is therefore done away with. Not at all. Okay, so the particular issue that's going on in Corinth, you would have picked it up as we read through, all has to do with head coverings. Um, Paul's talking in this section of his letter. He sort of shifts and he starts talking about what happens when God's people meet together in their public gathering, kind of like what we're doing now, although different, obviously, probably a smaller group of around 50 in, in meeting in a large home in Corinth. But it seems like what's happening in Corinth is that both men and women are taking part in upfront roles, uh, in leading in prayer and prophesying. We'll come back to what prophesying is in a few weeks, so hold on to that. We're not going to talk about that today. Um, but Paul's basic instruction here is that in that setting, when, when people are getting up to pray or prophesy in the public gathering, Women should have their heads covered, maybe pull up a veil or shawl or maybe a particular hairstyle, we're not sure, and men should have their heads uncovered. Okay, that's simple, right? Maybe we should just stop there. Um, easy to do? Uh, well, no, we're not going to stop there. There's more to say. Why does Paul say this? Why does Paul say this? And how do we apply it? Uh, do we kind of apply it in a one-to-one -one sort of correspondence well, what Paul is really concerned about is not actually some kind of strict dress code for all Christians at all times. His underlying concern is that God's people embrace and uphold God's good design for men and women. In whatever culture they're in, in, in whatever way that works in that culture, and that they show that when they meet together. They show that when they meet together. Uh, it's really about the heart. 
The head covering issue um, is one that had special meaning in their culture. We'll get to that in a bit. Um, but actually the heart of Paul's concern comes through in verse 3. That's the key verse, and we're actually going to focus there, probably spend most of the time there. Uh, it says this, But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So, it's a pretty dense verse. There's lots going on in there. Uh, the first puzzle that sort of stands out to us as we read through is, what does Paul mean by head? What does he mean by head? Uh, it's used in different ways through the passage, even. Just in this passage, it's used for, to describe that kind of lump over your shoulders. Um, it's also used metaphorically. Um, and, and that's how it's being used in this verse, in a metaphorical way. Until recently, this has always been understood to mean a position of leadership or responsibility, sort of like the head of a department. Uh, more recently, uh, there's um, an interpretation that serious uh, and um, godly people have sort of put forward, um, uh, that it's not primarily about authority or leadership, it's just talking about source, S-O-U-R-C-E, or origin, uh, like the head of a river, you know, we kind of use that term. So it's just saying that these things come, come from the head. Um, I'm not convinced about that second interpretation. I don't think it stacks up. There's a few reasons for that. But I think when Paul uses the word head like this in this metaphorical way, it does involve a, a kind of leadership and responsibility. Um, second puzzle. Um, who is the man and woman in view here? Is this a general call for all women to see all men as their head? I don't think so, again. Um, I, I think in this context, what's in view, and, and there's some tricky kind of issues around translation here, which you can talk to me about afterwards. I think what's in view is a, the particular relationship of marriage, particularly when it's talking about the woman and men. Uh, this has implications for how men and women relate more generally in the family of the church, but I think it's the husband and wife relationship that is in focus here. Okay, how are we going? Uh, do you notice that as we read that verse, you notice that apart from God the Father, everyone has a head. Um, even within the Trinity, there is this idea of headship. The Son is sent by the Father, obeys his Father, will one day hand over the kingdom to the Father so that God will be all in all. And that's just so important to point out at this point. You see what that means? It means that these kind of, whatever's going on here, these ordered relationships, don't in any way diminish the people in them. Not in the way that they should be conducted. Christ is no less equal to the Father, is he? Um, he is fully God, truly God, all the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. He is one with his Father, and yet as Son, he freely and willingly submits himself to his Father as his head. Okay, uh, another thing to notice as we go through, another thing to notice is, do you see how Jesus, he sort of functions in this as the model for both men and women, he, he, he both is a head and has a head. I, just, I think that's quite important. Um, for both the man and the woman, Jesus has gone before and shows the way. Uh, really important, I think. So what does a husband's headship look like? 
does it mean he's the one who makes all the decisions? Does it mean his topics of conversation are more important than yours? Not at all. Not at all. I I think we need to be very clear here. A husband's headship is never a justification for selfishness, certainly never for any kind of manipulation or abuse, whether that's physical or emotional or financial. And if this teaching is being used to justify that, it is evil and wrong and ought to be repented of and stopped. Friends, whatever a husband's headship looks like, it should lead to his wife's flourishing, not her diminishing. Whatever a husband's head looks like, it should lead to his wife's flourishing, not her diminishing. That's what Christ's headship of his church leads to. Um, Ultimately, headship looks like a cross, actually. That's what um, Paul says in Ephesians. You might know that verse. Husbands, he's talking about this dynamic. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that's what biblical headship looks like. Strong, manly, gentle, humble, self-giving love that dies to self day by day for the holiness and blessing of his wife. A kind of headship that makes it easy for a wife to willingly entrust herself to her husband's care and leadership. I'd suggest actually that the Bible places a harder calling on husbands in this respect. Okay. Well, back to this passage. Uh, Paul goes into this whole issue of head coverings. Uh, Let's read it from verse 4. I'll read it for us. Um, he, uh, He says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Uh, it's the same as having her head shaved. Uh, as I said before, there's a whole lot of debate about why, uh, what's going on here, why Paul focuses in on this issue. Uh, but basically, we know, right, what we wear communicates something. Okay, we, I think we all know that. It's different in each, in each culture. So if I was to get up here each week in a Port Power jersey, um, I'd be communicating something, wouldn't I? I'd have a handful of people listening to me and the rest sort of muttering under their breath. It would be unhelpful and distracting. But if I was in a different culture, right, if I went to the UK or the United States, no one would blink an eyelid. It wouldn't mean anything. It'd have no significance if I did that. I, you get what I'm saying? It, so it could be... So we're not entirely sure the significance of this head covering in Corinth in that time. It could be that the head covering was about modesty, about dressing appropriately in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself in a kind of distracting way. So in that culture, for a woman to have their head uncovered in public was viewed as immodest, especially a married woman. Uh, It would kind of send the signal that they were unmarried and available, uh, and it would dishonor their head, their husband. (laughs) So that's one possibility for what's going on here. Uh, it could have religious overtones, so there's a bit of a picture here. Um, it's kind of well known that in Roman temple worship, the priest would pull up a cloth over his head as he makes the sacrifices. You can see a picture of a... Oh, this is actually an, an emperor, I think, doing that. 
Um, but, and, and it could be that what Paul's doing here, he wants men to distance themselves from that kind of idol worship that would bring dishonor on Christ, their head. Um, it could be, and I'm probably leaning towards this to be honest, uh, it could be that Paul, could just be that Paul wants their gender differences to be clear in church and not blurred. Um, the first century Corinth was just as confused about sex and gender as 21st century Australia. Uh, and it's likely that there were some in this church who were intentionally trying to break down the God-given distinctions between men and women. And Paul wants the church to, uh, to resist that. It, in their culture, that meant it mattered. It, it mattered what you wore on your head in their culture because that communicated something significant in a way that it just doesn't in our culture. Okay. Well, I think the rest of the passage, Paul gives a number of reasons for this. And this is where you'll be unsatisfied because I'm just skimming over stuff that um, you have question marks about. So please chat to me afterwards. Uh, he gives, through the rest of the passage, he gives these reasons, sort of explaining this. He talks about shame and dishonor in verse 5 and 6. He talks about glory and angels in verse 7 to 12. And, he just, and then he, just the nature of things, which I think is uh, talking about custom, uh, this idea of cultural custom. Now, there's some complex things in there we're not going to get into, but the big issue Paul's driving at is this. Um, when they gathered together, when this church gathered together, their gatherings were to bring glory to God. That's, that's what all of them were on about, right? Whatever you do, um, glorify God with your life. Bring glory to God. Their gatherings were to bring glory to God. And all this other stuff going on was sort of taking away from that in some way. One important way they did that was to honour and celebrate their God-given gender differences as men and women. And to do that in a, not a showy way, but in an obvious way. Okay, friends, well, um, I'm sure you've got a million questions and thoughts, maybe comments. What do we make of all this? Is this passage saying that women should have long hair and wear their head coverings and men should have short hair and no head covering? Well, yes. I mean, obviously that's what the passage is saying. Is that what it's saying to us? That's what it was saying to the Corinthians. <laughs> and we've talked a little bit about that. And this is, it's actually a really important principle in understanding and reading the Bible is to first of all understand what it meant to the first readers in that culture, to do the hard work of trying to understand what it meant for them, try to see the underlying principle at play, and then we can ask, how might that same principle apply in our very different culture? So still holding on to the underlying conviction and principle, but asking the same question, asking the question, what would that look like for us in a very different time, a very different place? Uh, I think one of our difficulties in applying this passage is that what we wear just isn't as significant um, uh, culturally as it was then and as, as it is in many places across the world today. We've kind of, uh, in, as a culture, kind of erased a lot of those significance, that significance of what we wear. Ultimately, though, friends, I think it's actually about our hearts. Do we embrace God's good design, his gift of our gender, male and female, or are we rebelling against that? Uh, I think that in some way will come out in how you present yourself, uh, 
but, but also how, you, how we relate to one another in our church family. Now, I think we just got to be really careful about not promoting really unhealthy stereotypes. So being a man is not about liking hunting and sports. Being a woman is not about loving embroidery. There's lots of embroiderers, men who embroider in the Bible. So men, get your needles out. I'm not sure there's lots, but there are examples. Uh, But yeah, those cultural stereotypes do a lot of, actually do a lot of damage when we elevate them to gospel truth. They do a lot of damage. Uh, So we want to just be really careful about that. Um, But let's think a little bit more sort of practically. Men, what would it mean for you to embrace God's good design for you? Uh, What would it mean for you to take Jesus as your guide? I think it would mean taking responsibility to lead the way in denying yourself for the sake of the gospel, for the good of those around you. I think if you're married and have kids, it'll mean leading your family in godliness, not being passive, not, ra- think, not thinking, sort of raising your kids to know Jesus is your wife's or the church's responsibility. It's not, it's yours. Um, I'm reading a book about biblical masculinity at the moment. I normally steer clear of them, but this one I've had highly recommended. Uh, and it's got the greatest title for a book in this, uh, in, in this vein. It's called The Manual. Just love it. Anyway. Um, uh, it is actually quite good. Um, uh, it makes the comment that boys care for themselves and men care for others. And the author says he's met, he's met 50-year-old boys and 18-year-old men. So don't be a 50-year-old boy. Um, and young men, don't get sucked into the addictions of online gaming and pornography that so many young men are held hostage by God's design for you is much richer and fuller and meaningful to give yourself for the good of others and for the progress of the gospel. I'm a little more cautious talking to the ladies among us. Um, I think whatever that will look like for you, though, is it will look like embracing the gift of your womanhood. Um, The beauty of God's design is that you are free to serve him as a woman. Um, You bring something to our church that men don't. And we need each other. We need each other. Uh, Do you notice here also, it's just assumed that the women will be leading in prayer and prophesying, whatever that means. Uh, But but the, the key is that they'll be doing that as women as women. I think one clear application of this passage for those, is, for those women who are married uh, is it means you'll give your spouse the, res- the gift of your respect and honour. Um, that might show itself in how you dress. It'll certainly show itself in how you speak about and act towards your husband, how you honour your head. Uh, let's talk about church more broadly. <laughs> um, one, of the main, one of the main images for church in the New Testament is as a family. Uh, and in the family of the church, the assumption in the New Testament is that the person in my position, the senior pastor of the church, 
um, I think, should be a man to reflect God's good design. So I have a kind of headship over our church family. Uh, One way that works out is that the public teaching of God's word is done primarily by me and also by other qualified men who preach under my oversights. None of that is because I'm power hungry or don't want women to flourish in ministry. It's simply a way of honouring and celebrating God's good design of having a rightly ordered church family that can lead to the flourishing of both men and women in ministry as we partner together for God's glory and for the salvation of many. And that's where I want to finish, friends. I want to finish by actually lifting our eyes to that great purpose. There's so many things here. You may be feeling a whole range of emotions. Perhaps you're angry with what I've said. Perhaps you feel regrets, you're, you're uncertain. I do want to urge you to embrace this. Not just because it's God's instruction. I think it is that, and that's reason enough. But God gives us a much bigger picture to place all of these things in. God creates us male and female and wants us to embrace his good design, ultimately as a sign pointing to his wonderful gospel. The deep meaning of marriage is that it is a powerful symbol of the love of Christ for his bride, the church. And that gives meaning and dignity to all people in Christ. It gives meaning and dignity to those who are single, Because in Christ, you are included in the real marriage, actually, the ultimate marriage that all human marriages are just a shadow of. It stops those who are married from idolizing their marriage because your marriage is not the goal. Christ and his kingdom is. And friends, it gives us a great hope, I think, actually, a great hope that as the world looks on and sees us trying to work this out together, working this out together, they will see a beautiful embodiment of the gospel. That's what we should be longing for. That's, that, that what, that's what should be the outcome of this dynamic at play in a church family, people looking on and seeing the gospel in action. A beautiful embodiment of Christ's self-giving love at the cross, of his people joyfully living under his good and perfect headship that leads to life and light and love. I'm going to pray. Let's, let's pray to finish. Our gracious God, take this seed of your word, please. Plant it deep in our hearts. Keep us from having stony hearts. Keep us from having thorns grow up and choke out your word. Make us good soil. Make us humble receivers of your good word and cause it to bear great fruit among us. May it lead to flourishing and life and joy and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.